Genesis chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, In the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blot out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, male and animals, men, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month in the Uh, In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned with him to the ark for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. 
He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the six hundredth and first year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you, your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with them. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for your word. We are thankful to be in a place where we can read it freely and study it joyfully. God, we pray that you would teach us, that you would speak in this place, that we would hear the words of the Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts and applying to our lives how desperately we need a Savior, how desperately we need rescuing from the floods of this world, from the way this world is unraveling because of sin. God, would you teach us and lead us out in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. Well, everywhere you look today, people seem to be striving to associate themselves with their own particular brand of righteousness. It's been called virtue signaling. People have literal and figurative bumper stickers all over the place, just trying to identify themselves with what they believe is good, with what they believe is right. From the people that we vote for, to where we stand on certain issues, to what brands we like and groups that we associate with. My favorite was during COVID, people had single signs out in front of their house that had some sort of statement about every hot button issue and what their stance was on it out in front of the signs. And and they they had signs for both sides. I actually saw a sign that virtue signaled the the virtue of those in the house because they were opposed to virtue signaling. And it was just so meta. So like, I am so much above virtue signaling. Just look at my sign. If you want to know what kind of person I am, look at my sign. Hi, my name's Adam. Have you seen my sign? Have you seen the bumper stickers on my car? This is who I am. Just in five short statements. We like taking sides. We like taking sides and we like to think that we're pursuing righteousness, whether we call that righteousness, conservatism or progressivism. Whatever your brand of righteousness is, we enjoy taking sides and we like arguing against the other side. Just turn on the news, scroll through Twitter. We love taking sides. But I question whether or not we really like being associated with righteousness. 
We may call it righteousness. We may call it goodness, rightness. This is good, that is bad. This is right, that is wrong. I'm on this side. What side are you on? But do we really want to be associated with true righteousness? I wonder what Noah's kids thought about being associated with their dad. The only righteous person on the planet. Did they admire him? Did they look up to him? Did they aspire to be righteous like him? We're not told. Was his righteousness a hindrance to their desires? Like any kid who wants to do anything that sounds fun, whose parent says, that's not good? Did he rain on their parade? Was Noah kind of a bummer because of his righteousness to his kids? Regardless of how Noah's family felt prior to the flood, I guarantee they were pretty thankful for who he was once the rains came. If by any chance they had any ill feelings toward their father, they were all washed away when the flood came. See, virtue signaling can get certain people or groups to approve of you, but only true righteousness has the power to save you when the world comes undone. And let's be honest, the world is coming undone. Church, the world is unraveling. Whether you're here and you know Jesus or not, and you know where the Bible says that we are headed, you can look at this world and see, identify that it is coming undone. And when it does, no sign in your yard, no bumper sticker, no virtue signaling, no little emoji in your username on social media can save you. Now, this text is depicting just this, the the world coming undone. The flood is not just a lot of rain. Okay, it wasn't just a lot of rain that happened during the flood. This winter, we have had unusually heavy rains, and there's been flash flood warnings that it seems like every other week, and we've learned new terminology like atmospheric river and bomb cyclone. I've never heard in all of my life. But it wasn't just a lot of rain in the flood. Even if it had rained like it rained these last several months and it continued for 40 days in a row, it still wouldn't have flooded the world. Okay? In order to flood the entire world, the oceans would have to increase in size by 300%. 3 times larger than what currently exists this kind of cataclysmic event to occur requires a little more than just rain okay so the text says that it not only rained for 40 days and 40 nights it says in chapter 7 verse 11 on that day the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened This is a picture of the world coming undone. This is a picture of creation coming undone. Let's think back to the creation story. We covered this several weeks ago. 
But in the beginning, when the world was a dark, watery chaos and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, on the first day, God creates light and he separates the light from the darkness. He calls the light day and he calls the darkness night. And then on day two, he separates the waters of the heavens from the waters beneath and he creates the expanse or the firmament in the sky to hold back the waters and to keep water separated from water. And so we talked about this several weeks ago, but as a way of reminder, when the ancients looked up in the sky, they saw a blue sky. And so they assumed that because the sky is blue and because occasionally water falls from the sky, they believed that there was a glass dome structure called the firmament that was holding waters back, that there was physical water up in the sky. And they believed that the earth was flat and that it floated on great cosmic waters, the great deep. And so what is being described in the flood is not just heavy rain. It is the undoing of creation. The expanse that God separated between waters and waters was removed. And from both ends, the fountains of the great deep burst forth. The windows of the heaven were opened and waters consumed the earth. This is a cosmic catastrophe that not only demonstrates God's divine judgment against sin, but also depicts the inevitable result of sin, that sin causes what is good and life-giving in the world to come undone. Sin causes the world to be unraveled, God's divine order in things to spiral into chaos. Sin is the problem. And so God gives the world over to the ultimate implications of sin and the world comes undone. The world is decreated as many theologians say. And as a picture of this in the midst of the flood, you have a watery chaos, a watery world where life is unable to exist And instead of the spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, you have the people of God, Noah and his family in the ark floating on the surface of the waters. This is a decreation and a new creation right before our eyes. See, if left unchecked, sin will unmake our world. As we rebel against God's order in the world, it spins out into chaos, whether it's selfishness or unforgiveness or resentment within a family that pulls marriages apart and estranges parents from their children or the greed of governments and tyrants who oppress their own people and make war against others. Sin, if given full reign, will cause the world to spiral into chaos and fear and destruction and death. And people today want to believe in their own version of righteousness, however they define it. And they believe that their version of righteousness will make the world a better place. But not even Noah's righteousness made the world that was falling apart better. 
but his righteousness was the reason that he was saved from the world that was falling apart. The text says as clear as day that God saved Noah because of Noah's righteousness. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. When all of the world had given themselves over to sin and evil, Noah did what was right. Because he did what was right, God rescued him. Righteousness is understood in contrast with sin. If sin is causing the divine order in the world to unravel, then righteousness is operating within God's divine order. If sin is causing everything to fall apart because humans are not relating to God as they were made to relate to God and not relating to one another as they were made to relate to one another and not relating to the animal kingdom, the way they were made to relate to the animal kingdom and all of creation. If sin is disjointing in those relationships, then righteousness is when all of those relationships are put back into right order. See, righteousness doesn't mean you do everything right. Righteousness means you live in right relationships. You might do something wrong, and hurt somebody. But if you live in right relationships with that person, you will confess, you'll apologize, you will be reconciled to that person and, and, and have right relationships restored. Unrighteousness would be having a, a falling out with someone and just completely rejecting them and hoping they die. That's not righteousness. That's not right relationships. And so Noah's righteousness doesn't mean that Noah was perfect. It means that he lived in right relationship with God and with others. Now, Noah in Genesis is also called blameless. Okay, this doesn't mean necessarily that nobody could point a finger and, and identify something wrong that Noah did. Like no one could blame him. Okay, other than Noah, uh, Job and King David are called blameless in the Old Testament. And David was far from sinless. David made massive mistakes, and yet he's called blameless. See, blamelessness refers to a person who is without moral defect or blemish and who walks in obedience to God's law. Okay, that means internally there is no uh, uh, moral defect. There is no problem with their intentions, their motives. And when you combine righteousness with blamelessness in Noah's life, Noah not only lived in right relationships, but he did it sincerely. We have a lot of people who will try to live in right relationships or try to do right things begrudgingly or out of a sense of duty. Noah desired righteousness. He delighted in righteousness. It was his joy. It was his life's mission to, to be righteous. He loved living in right relationships with people. He was sincere about it. No one could accuse him of otherwise. He was blameless. 
And so because of his righteousness, Noah is rescued. Now, if you've been part of church, you've been a Christian for a while, I know you're saying, but it also says that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Noah was saved by grace. Yes, we talked about that last week. Noah is saved by grace, by faith, but righteousness matters. Okay, his righteousness is a righteousness that comes by faith, but righteousness matters. Not just the things that we do, but the reason we do them. It matters. What you do with your life matters. What you do with your body, what you say with your mouth, what you do with another person's body, it matters. Not just what you do, but how, why you're doing it, your motives behind it. Righteousness matters. Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are the words of Jesus. That's not Old Testament people. That's gospel. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were the most righteous people that lived in that day. And Jesus said, it's not enough. It's not enough. Again, in Matthew 23, 27 through 28, Jesus again says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's not about just doing the right thing. Righteousness is not just about right actions, but to sincerely delight in doing the right thing. The Pharisees did it for show. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the picture that we get of Noah in the book of Genesis, in a world that is opposed to, to God. He is delighted with God. In a world that is opposed to God's divine order of things, Noah rejoices in operating in the divine order of things. And so God saved him. Noah is saved because of his righteousness, but he's not the only one that gets saved. And I'm not talking about the animals. Noah is saved because of his righteousness. But then why was Noah's family saved? Not a word is mentioned about the kind of lives that his family lived. After the flood, we'll learn that Shem and Japheth, they seem to be relatively upstanding characters. Ham is a piece of work. Ham gets it all messed up. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. But before the flood, their righteousness is not described. Noah is righteous, Noah is saved, and so is his family. Why is his family saved? See, God saves Noah's family because of Noah's righteousness. So we're supposed to look at Noah as an example of righteousness in, in, in a world full of sin and corruption. Noah was righteous and Noah was saved. And so we could just like close the book and say, let's pray. 
in our world of sin and corruption, uh, uh, we must be righteous and then we will be saved. But we know that's not what the Bible teaches. Because I think it's eight times God makes reference to the other people on the ark with him. You, your wife, your sons, your sons' wives. You, your wife, your sons, your sons' wives. Because you are righteous. You, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives. Get on the boat. God saves Noah's family because of Noah's righteousness. So we're not going to be saved by following Noah's example. We're not going to be saved by following Noah's example of righteousness. We're not going to be saved by making a change in our life and just doing right things now. We're not going to be saved because of righteousness. We're not like Noah. And the moral of this story is not be more like Noah, be better, be more righteous. See what Noah did? Go and do what Noah does. That's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is you're like his family. You need a righteousness that comes from outside of yourself. Noah's family points us to our need for a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. Our world is coming undone, not not because of natural disasters like rain or apparently carp has tornadoes now. It's not why the world is unraveling. The world is coming undone because of sin and evil. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. And our sin, not just the sin of tyrants, but the sin of tyranny in our own hearts that plays out in our relationships, even with people that we love, when we wound people that we love, when we belittle people that we love, it's causing right relationships, righteousness, and the world to unravel, to fall apart at the seams. We don't deserve any better fate than the rest. Noah's family did not deserve any better fate than the rest of the world. But like Noah's family, you can be saved from the consequences of your sin, not because of your righteousness, but because of the righteousness of another. See, you can be saved. And God saves you because of Christ's righteousness. We need a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. We need someone who belongs in the kingdom of heaven to welcome us in. We can't earn our ticket. We must be welcomed in by somebody who has the right to be there. Jesus is the only one with the right to be there. My wife has a cousin named Luke who got married about six months before Katie and I did. And the day before his wedding, um, the uh, cousins and, and in-laws and stuff, we all got into a big van and, uh, and we went golfing, just kind of hang out with him uh, before he got married. We went golfing and then kind of hit the town. And Luke was for years an amateur uh, MMA fighter in San Luis Obispo. And he trained 
um, with one of his training partners uh, was the former heavyweight champion of UFC, uh, Chuck Liddell. And so we're getting into this van and, uh, and Luke turns to us and says, guys, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. What do you want first? And we're like, well, give us the good news. He said, good news, Chuck's coming. We're like, all right. We're kind of pumped to get to like hang out. In, and in, in San Luis Obispo, Chuck Liddell is like king back then. So we're like, we get to hang out with Chuck. That's awesome. I've met a UFC fighter. This is going to be awesome. This is going to be great. What's the bad news? Chuck's coming. <laughs> See, Luke knew that being associated with Chuck Liddell in slow was going to have its pros and its cons. We were going to get VIP access anywhere we went. And we did. It was kind of fun. Because we were with Chuck, we were going to get treated like Chuck. But because we were with Chuck, we also got treated like Chuck, and we almost got in a fist fight over a game of pool. See, if you've trusted in Jesus... You're associated with Christ. I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. The good news is God's going to treat you like Jesus. So you've been declared righteous because he's righteous. And you're going to have eternal life because life belongs to him. He has conquered the grave. You're going to be treated as a child of God because he's the son of God. He's going to regard you as holy because Jesus is holy. Y'all, this is good news. Because of Jesus, God is going to treat you like Jesus. But the bad news is because if you are with Jesus, the world is going to treat you like it treated Jesus. And so I ask again, do we really want to be associated with true righteousness? Do we know the consequences of being associated with true righteousness in a world of lawlessness, in a world of wickedness, in a world of sin and corruption? Do we really want to be the people trying to hold the world together when every force of sinful nature is trying to rip it apart? Do you want to be associated with true righteousness? If you are, then God's going to treat you like Jesus, but so will the world. The world will treat you like Jesus. It's not going to be comfortable. Like associating with Noah prior to the rain. See, there's actually no texts in scripture that say Noah was ever ridiculed. We have this concept in our mind of Noah building the ark and people like shooting spitwads at him and throwing tomatoes and stuff and making fun of him. It's, it's not in there. That's a later tradition that was added onto the text. It's plausible. You can see, you can see why. There is no stories in the Bible of people clamoring to get on the boat or Noah even offering them a seat on the boat. God says, build an ark for who? For you, your wife, your sons, your son's wives, and all the animals. There's no seat for them. Not so with Christ. There is a seat for you. 
There is a place prepared for you. We should be clamoring to get on that boat. And one by one, he lifts us in. He's prepared a place for us. It's difficult to associate with Jesus. I get it. For years, I I was doing ministry in Los Angeles for 12 years. And I remember time and time again, people asking me what I did for a living. And I said, I worked for a nonprofit company. I was a pastor. I just didn't want anyone to associate me with their preconceived notions of what that meant before they got to know me. I remember when my softball team, I played softball in in Burbank for for years. The team was made up of a bunch of uh, screenwriters. They just assumed I was a screenwriter. I was on the team for two years before anyone asked me what I did, and they were confounded. They had had no no clue, and they started apologizing to me, like, all the things we've been talking about. I'm like, I forgive you. Take it up with Jesus. And I remember feeling so guilty. Remember feeling, why am I so ashamed of Jesus? Why am I so ashamed to be associated with Jesus? And I would remember Jesus' words in Mark 8, 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the son of man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Say, God, why am I ashamed to be associated with you. Why am I ashamed of this? Why am I afraid for people to find out what I believe or to find out what I do for a living? Some of you can relate. And I would remember Paul's words in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And I would still just, why, why can't I say this like Paul? Why can't I, 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 I stand up and be unashamed for Jesus? Why do I have this in me? And I would read about the willingness of the apostles in Acts 41 who were beaten because of their testimony of Jesus. And it says they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Are you kidding me? I say, God, why why is this so hard for me? Why is it so hard for me to be associated with you? You're righteous, you're good, you're holy, you're wonderful. Why, Why would this be so hard for me? See, it's because we want to be associated with people or places or things that make us look good. But associating with Jesus, associating with the church does not always look good. The world doesn't treat it like it's good or important anymore. Back in the day, it was advantageous to be a Christian. Not anymore. It's no longer socially acceptable to be a believer. Some of you will have a tough time telling people tomorrow at work what you did this weekend. You'll go through the list of everything and you will just for some reason, leave out that you worshiped in the presence of God with God's people on Sunday morning. I don't say that to shame you. I've been there. Served as a pastor. Well, I work for a nonprofit. It's not a lie. 
it's difficult to be associated with righteousness in a wicked world. It's difficult to be associated with righteousness, true righteousness, the righteousness of Christ in a world that's falling apart because of sin. It's difficult to be associated with righteousness until the rains come. Until the rains come. And if we're afraid to associate with Jesus now, it's going to get harder. It's going to get worse. But this is the best news of all. You are not saved by your ability to associate with Jesus. You are saved because Jesus associated with you. You are saved because Jesus was not ashamed to call you brother, to call you sister. Jesus is not ashamed to call you friend. Jesus is not ashamed to hang naked and dying and bleeding on a cross to cover your sin. Jesus is not ashamed of you. The good news is not that Jesus allows himself, uh, sorry, allows you to be associated with him. The good news is that Jesus has associated with you. He is the righteous one who deserves to escape the consequences of sin in this world. But when he took on flesh, he associated with your humanity and he identified with you, not only in your weakness and in your struggle, in your humanity, in your temptations against sin. But when he was nailed to the cross, he associated, didn't just associate with your sin, but 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he became sin. For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus received your sin. Jesus became sin. Jesus received your sin as his own so that you could receive his righteousness as your own. You are saved because Jesus belongs in the kingdom of heaven. And when you show up at the door, he says, come on in. Alistair Begg preached a very famous sermon just a couple of years ago where he talks about the thief on the cross who was crucified with Jesus. This man who had committed murder, maybe never been to a Bible study in his entire life, wasn't, you know, looked upon fondly in religious circles. Jesus looks at him because of his faith. And says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today you, murderer. Today you, someone who doesn't deserve this. Today, because of your faith, because, of, because you believe in me that I'm a king. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And Beg describes what this scene must have looked like when the thief on the cross approached the pearly gates. And the angels of heaven were trying to decide whether or not this thief should be allowed into the kingdom. Never been baptized, you know, wasn't a member of a church, uh, didn't know the, the words to amazing grace, uh, none of this. Couldn't articulate the doctrine of justification by faith or describe what the Trinity even was. 
But when asked why he should be allowed into the kingdom, Beg says that the thief must have looked at the angel and said, because the man on the middle cross said I could come. Because Jesus said I could be here. Because of Christ's righteousness and because of faith that his righteousness covers, uh, that uh, is, is given to you and that his blood covers your sin, Jesus says that you can be with him in paradise, that you can have eternal life, that you can be saved, that your soul saved, your life redeemed, your sins forgiven and live forever. It's not our righteousness that will earn our salvation. Getting saved is not about getting your life together. It's about Christ's association with you so that you can be granted the benefits of his righteousness. And this has a remarkable effect on the life of faith. This changes something. It actually gives you a desire to live a righteous life. When you've been given righteousness by grace, It actually gives you a desire to see what God said is true of you actually come to fruit. See, faith in Jesus doesn't magically make you a good person. Faith in Jesus is not just a fish bumper sticker on your car. Hi, I'm Adam. Have you seen my fish? I'm a good person. Faith in Jesus doesn't magically make you a good person. It miraculously changes the way you want to live. See, if you're here today and and you're you're thinking that following Jesus is, is, is a burden because of all of the things that you used to love to do, but now you can't do, I don't think you get it. Or, Or if you're here today and you're resistant to faith, because of all the things that you like to do and you're afraid that God's not gonna let you do it, I don't think you get it. God's spirit through faith in Jesus actually gives you a desire to do the right thing. Not just take the right position on issues or, or, even, or even just doing the right things, but delighting in living in right relationships with God and with others. Not because of guilt, not because of fear of hell, but because you delight in God for what God has done for you. It's not easy You will experience rejection. If you're with Jesus, the world will treat you like Jesus. But so will God. And you have already been received as a child of God through faith. You've already been received as a friend of God through faith. What other friends do you need in this world when Jesus calls you friend? And then our personal righteousness, which does not save us, still makes a powerful impact in this world. Jesus calls the church the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Because as salt, it preserves the world from the rot that is invading. And as light, it casts a light on the darkness and exposes what's really going on in the world. 
And so righteousness is a preservative in the world. And, and, and righteousness exposes the wickedness and the darkness of the world. And for this reason, Jesus says, when people see your good deeds, they will glorify your Father in heaven. I'll make this very practical and then we'll close in prayer. Because you are saved by Christ's righteousness, you are declared righteous. Therefore, go and be righteous. Go and as, 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 as the New Testament says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The, the, the natural result to being saved by grace is a life of righteousness because it's God who produces that in you. So don't be a spectator of righteousness. Very practical. Don't be a proponent of bumper sticker righteousness, of virtue signaling righteousness, of lawn sign righteousness. Be righteous. Because he said you are. Because he made you righteous. So go and live righteous. Don't. I love baseball. And it's baseball season. I'm a huge Dodger fan. And I'm embarrassed every time I talk about the Dodgers and I say we. Just because I wear a Dodger shirt doesn't mean I have a World Series ring. Like. I'm a spectator. I'm a baseball spectator. I don't want to be a spectator of righteousness. Don't just put the accoutrement on your life and then not actually get in the game. Get in the game. Two ways this week, tonight, prayer and worship. Get in the game. 6 p.m. right here. It's Palm Sunday. Jesus is king. So we're going to celebrate him as king and we're going to ask him to save us now. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We're going to come and we're going to worship because he's worthy. I know we've got stuff to do. We're going to worship. Come and worship and pray and let's ask God to save, to save sinners, to save the lost. And we have about a thousand ways to associate with Jesus. Just spread out in the foyer out there. Those little cards that invite people to Easter. Go associate with Jesus. To everyone you know and invite them to hear about the resurrection of the Son of God. Because Jesus is alive and the resurrection removes all doubt. Associate with Jesus. Invite people to Jesus, not to church, not to Easter Sunday. Invite them to Jesus, the righteous. And love them and pray for them and serve them. Not because of anything we can do for God, but because of what God has done for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would stir up in us worship because of who you are and what you have done. And God, I pray that today, all of us, whether we have previously trusted you or not, that we would trust that your righteousness is our righteousness. 
and that all of our guilt and shame in this place by the power of the Holy Spirit would be washed away like a flood that comes down and, 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 and washes away the, the, the dirt and the filth in this world. God, would you wash away our sin? And would you empower us to live righteously. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who is being experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit, who convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment, who feels the heavy hand of God on them and just pointing out this particular area of their life, whatever it may be. God, I pray that through faith, they would not experience the the finger of God as accusation, Lord, but, but as selecting them, choosing them, I want you in the kingdom. I want you on the boat. God, would you turn our fear into joy? And would you stir us up for worship today? In Jesus' name, amen.